Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, why do so many brides in North America continue to take their husband's name? New research digs into that very question and comes up with some pretty interesting answers. And we say I do to finding out all about it from one of North America's top researchers on this issue. Well, it's been 22 years this week since 9-11, and one of the many lasting legacies of that day is just how much airport security has changed. I'm sure you recognize that over the years, but how many of those new measures that were put in place then and since are really still necessary? We'll find out. A lot has been made about the billions in subsidies the federal and Ontario governments have dished out to lure Volkswagen and Stellantis to build two major electric battery factories in St. Thomas and Windsor. Ottawa says the former will take just five years to break even, but the parliamentary budget officer thinks that could be more like 20 years. Is that a fair assessment? But first, the Liberal caucus is gathered in London, Ontario, to plan for the fall session of Parliament beginning on Monday. It comes as the party has taken a huge hit in the polls over the summer, falling well behind the Conservatives. So how much division is there behind the scenes, and what will they try to do to find some momentum? Uh, the Prime Minister is finally back in this country. They fixed his plane, so he managed to come back to Canada right in time to sort of wander into what might be a bit of a hornet's nest at a Liberal caucus meeting in London, Ontario today, ahead of the return to Parliament uh, next week. Uh, London today, and of course housing was front and centre. That shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone. London today became the first city to sign a deal under the new National Housing Accelerator Fund that was announced back in the 2022 federal budget. Applications were, weren't accepted until July, so this is not new money, but the announcement is new. It should mean more than 2,000 new housing units will be built in that city over the next three years, and the Prime Minister is uh, issuing a challenge to other cities to step up with their own proposals. I want to challenge other mayors right across the country to step up with their proposals too so we can get building more homes, increasing supply and lowering the prices for families. Right. Uh, you can tell where that's coming from because this is clearly front and centre for a lot of Canadian voters right now. So that means more than 2,000 new housing units will be built in London, Ontario. But to put that into perspective, Canada's housing agency today came out to say the country is still facing a roughly 3.5 million housing shortfall by the end of this decade. Uh, the agency's updated outlook, and that's the Canada Mortgage and Housing Agency, uh, expects some 390,000 fewer housing units will be built by 2030 than it projected last year because of higher costs. But demand is slowing a bit. So so it offsets a little, but you can still see the numbers there. Uh, the summer uh, has seen a big shift in the opinion polls with the opposition conservatives, obviously, uh, well ahead in some of the liberals with issues such as affordability and housing, seemingly pushing Pierre Polyev's uh, fortunes into majority territory. Now, of course, an election isn't imminent and these are just polls, but you can imagine all of this, if we're paying attention to it, so are Liberal MPs meeting in London today. Joining me now is John O'Leary. He was a member of the 2021 and 2019 Liberal Party of Canada's national campaign team, and he's now a senior consultant with Crestview Strategy. John, thanks for your time tonight. Thanks very much, Ben. So tell me a bit about this, about this gathering. I mean, one can expect that everyone's been reading the polls this summer as well, and uh, there might be a few, there might be, might be a, bit of a, a bit of grumbling going on, I would suspect. I think uh, I think it's safe to say, and, and we we've heard certainly some on the on the way in. I mean, for the Liberals, they're they're tr- going to try to accomplish three things, and and really see three things on on full tour at this retreat. You know, there'll be uh, there will be important speeches, probably from the Prime Minister, likely from other key ministers like Christopher Freeland or or Sean Fraser, the Housing Minister. 
to begin to, uh, you know, give a, a bit of a confidential heads up to the caucus about what to expect this fall as, as Parliament resumes. What are what they, some of the things that they're thinking about, whether it's for the next budget or into some of their housing plans, such as the announcement that we saw today. Um, they'll likely have a presentation from their pollster to see, uh, you know, what the internal numbers are, are showing compared to some of those opinion polls, which which are quite concerning. And certainly do you, you are hearing the Liberals very concerned about, about that now. Um, and they may be hearing from some, you know, external voices, whether it's an academic or, or other expert, maybe a former politician, to help give them a bit of that, that kind of, uh, you know, outside lens. Um, but, but overall, there, there's definitely, you know, there are definitely very high stakes going into this, into this retreat um, and into this, uh, into this next session of Parliament. The, the state of the polls, concern among Canadians, um, it, it, it definitely has the pressure on the Liberals to, to deliver. I mean, you've been involved in a lot of the strategizing around communicating a platform, around running an election campaign. Where do you think, I mean, I have my own theories about this, but where do you think things have kind of fallen down for the government over the last, well, I mean, we can't really tell, but say the last six months or so, maybe since the winter session began. Uh, I think a couple of things. I mean, the, the Liberal caucus team itself, you know, it, it, it's easy to, it's easy to begin to kind of assume that they are very scattered right now or at each other's throats. I don't think that that's really the case. I think you're, you're hearing some, you're hearing some criticism and some concern, but they're they are a far more united group than than may than it may appear, particularly considering how many were elected that first time in 2015. Um, but but I think that there's no question that Canadians are are seeing Pierre Polyev, um, the the, uh, the impact of his paid advertising. Um, that is, uh, you know, on fairly heavy rotation on, on television and radio now. Um, it, it's beginning to have an impact, and I think when you when you compare that with, um, you know, with the summer months are typically a bit more of a, of a quiet period in politics, and, and the Liberals may not have been quite as active out there, you know, making big national statements and, and speeches. I think that's something the Prime Minister himself, you know, he led the announcement today, speaking about about housing. Um, and, and about that, that you know, the 2,000 new units of, of housing that, that are being built, I think that the prime minister kind of needs to be doing a bit more of that. And and I think that's something that we should be should be seeing now, um, versus what may have been more of a of a summer to to kind of reset and to plan, shuffle cabinet ministers, and they need time to get up to speed. So um, there's really no time to waste now in a minority parliament with a, an election that could happen at any time. Yeah, when one looks at it, I mean, I remember distinctly back when I was covering, when I was in, in Ottawa covering Parliament, of course, the, the Conservatives were legendary for sort of attacking every new Liberal leader at the time, whether it was Stéphane Dion and Michael Ignati, of sort of defining them before they could define themselves. And I think what I look at what, what happened in the last, you know, in the last year or so is that Pierre Polyev was very much, now he's a, a talented opposition politician, has been one for many, many years now, but he was kind of allowed to define himself. And that felt like, and that was sort of surprising to watch because he's been on the attack almost constantly for the last eight months or so. And there hasn't seemed to have been, been a lot of a response, or at least not a very concerted response. What, what do you think that's down to? I, I, think, that, I think that sometimes you want, um, you know, sometimes you want to kind of uh, hold, keep your powder dry in a situation like this too. Like the more that Pierre Polyev um, feels as though the Liberals are giving him a bit of a pass, perhaps he may feel a little bit more emboldened to um, share some blunt opinions that, um, at a time in an election when the focus is on, when the spotlight is, is burning brightly, to be to see that kind of come up, which in many cases may be the first time Canadians are encountering that opinion, that may be the moment of maximum impact. And I think the Liberals have been very good about um, 
about deploying uh, contrasts like that at a time when it would have the greatest impact. Uh, the middle of you know the middle of July, years potentially before an election, is perhaps not the time to deliver you know your best hits and those 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 uh, those greatest criticisms that you may have of the of the leader. So we may, as we get as it as an election becomes perhaps more inevitable or, or more imminent, we may begin to see that uh, that really ramp up. But there's no question that um, you know the prime minister, I think, over the course of the summer was himself leading some of these attacks and has himself been introducing many of these contrasts. I think that more of the, his ministers and others need to perhaps to do a bit more of that, carry more of that uh, of that load, so that you know Canadians can be reminded of the prime minister that they voted for in 2015. You know the sunny ways, better is always possible. He needs to kind of I think recapture some of that and, and rebuild that uh, that bridge, so that Canadians can continue to see him as an agent of change and as a person that they can trust, not only to have delivered in the past, the pandemic or what have you, but into the into the future and, and into a new mandate. Yeah, it's tough to be an agent of change after eight years in power. I mean, I think every leader, Stephen yeah. Harper, everyone behind him has found that out themselves, right? But, but you know, like even just today, Ben, like he, at his announcement in London, the very first thing he said about housing was that it's a solvable problem. And sure, you know, there was there was blame placed on, you know, there's not enough supply and municipalities can be moving faster to, to build more. But by framing it as a solvable problem implies that there is a solution and that he will have one. And that's that's ramping up expectations, no doubt. Um, it means that in the you know at when when the next election kicks off that progress on the file may not be good enough because he's he's you know clearly saying that this problem can get solved and if that hasn't happened by election day there's a potential kind of judgment there so you know it, it, to a certain degree the prime minister is putting himself in a situation where he he alone kind of needs to help sort of solve this problem and yes use his team and and, and Canadians to get kind of get behind him. Um, in some respects, I think he kind of likes that. He likes that pressure cooker and that uh, that crucible. He was yeah. underestimated when he had that fight with with Patrick Brazeau in the 2015 election in third. You know, so he, in some ways, kind of likes to paint himself into a corner um, and kind of fight his way out. Uh, John, I was reading back because this always fascinates me. If you take 2015. Trudeau's speeches, and you compare them to 2023 Polyev's speeches. If you just change some of the some of the keywords, they start to sound a lot alike. So here's one from uh, from the Prime Minister now, back in 2015. Safe, adequate, and affordable housing is essential to building strong families, strong communities, and a strong economy. We have a plan to make housing more affordable. I guess one of the big problems that the, the government is facing right now, and this is aside from whatever people, whatever anyone thinks politically, is that if you look back to eight years ago and say to yourself, "Am I better off now?" The answer for an increasing number of Canadians for a number of reasons is not really. And that's a tough one to be. You know, absolutely. I think the, the, the prime minister and you, and you hear it in, in their caucus and in their, and in the prime minister himself, you know, they'll, they're, they're quick to say we've made massive investments in housing. And, and, and it's true, you know, their numbers, I think says that there's something like $82 billion has been invested in, in their, in that, the national housing strategy since 2015. But, you know, it's if Canadians aren't feeling it, then that's kind of really where that disconnect occurs, you know, in what they've been perhaps hearing on the on the doorsteps or, or, you know, over the summer. Um, they're now they're now really being pushed to take action. And clearly, if if money isn't the issue, then it's then it's perhaps the way they're uh, it's perhaps the way they're sharing that their their news with uh, with Canadians. But it, it is it's got to be frustrating to be to be there, to know the investments in the work that, that's gone in and and seeing now that it's just not it's just not having that impact 
John, do you get the impression, this is something I've noticed too, I mean, I, I know he's a good campaigner and, and, you know, I've watched, obviously watched Justin Trudeau for many, many, many years now. Do you think Pierre Polyev is outworking him right now? Do you think he's sort of out-hustling him, to use another sports metaphor? I, I, I think that the Prime Minister and the, and the team are, uh, are, are ta- like, they've got quite a lot that they are, that they are working on, on on an ongoing basis. Like, let's, let's remember that, you know, there is a, the war in Ukraine, you've got you know, horrible wildfires across Western Canada and across British Columbia. You know, it, there are any number of, of crises and issues that, um, that are confronting them on, a, on an ongoing basis. Prime Minister, you know, uh, had overseas summits, etc. So I think that there's quite a lot of work. I think, though, that where, where they're now going to need to really zero in is on the, the domestic Canadian political issues that are that Canadians are, are really saying that this is what I want you to spend your time on and I I think that the Liberals really need to kind of discipline themselves to focus to focus in a, in a really laser like way on, on those issues governing presents yourself with a million different things to to do and say on a daily basis they, they, there's there's got to be a bit of a, a zeroing in on, on those kind of key things that um, that are really going to have an electoral impact. Do you think? Do you think there'd be a change at the top? I mean, I know we've talked about this for, for the walk in the snow. Not to use that tired old analogy and to bring his dad back into the picture again, but do you think there might be a change at the top between now and an election? I really, I really don't see it. I don't think that the I don't think that there that there will be a you know a Paul Martin style sort of mutiny within the within the ranks to to oust Jean Chrétien as, as we saw you know uh, as we saw in the past. And the prime minister is fairly far out now to having said that he intends to intends to run again and, and intends to lead the party into the next election. And I think that he, he does love the campaign. He does love the um, kind of that give and take. And as they say, he likes to be underestimated, but he, he, there is certainly going to be a lot of pressure on him to, to really deliver and, and to, to be that leader that, um, that he, he wants to be and knows he can be. And, and I think it remains to be seen how Canadians will, will respond to that. Right. If you had one word of advice to give them then for this upcoming fall session, uh, what would it be? I, I think that for, if, if, I, uh, if it was up to me, I think I'd be looking maybe at three things here for the fall. One is, um, you know, I'd be, I'm going to be very closely watching the leaks coming out of caucus. You know, caucus members have been fairly, uh, it's, there's been quite a lot in the last few weeks. Can this caucus retreat settle some of that down? Um, can the, those kind of family squabbles stay within the family? I will be watching to see the Prime Minister and 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 Christopher Freeland, and the extent to which they are front and center and leading and driving and making the case uh, this fall uh, at the head of the agenda on, on these kind of key issues that matter most: housing, cost of living. Um, uh, and, and I think I'll, I'll be watching too to see. You know, I I predict that there will we'll hear more from the Prime Minister before the end of this caucus retreat about what those priorities are for the fall and and. Um, you know, it, it, he he needs to kind of seize the moment here when the spotlight is on to to illustrate that. I think if he doesn't, it's a, it's a missed opportunity, and I just don't think his team's going to uh, is going to miss. John O'Leary, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Anytime. Thanks very much, Ben. <laughs> This one really struck me today. I mean, I heard this late last night and thought, 
Wow. So the leading decongestant used by millions of people across North America looking for relief from a stuffy nose, for instance, is no better than a placebo. That's according to uh, U.S. government experts who reviewed the latest research on the long question drug ingredient. It's called phenylephrine. Um, It took over from pseudoephedrine back in 2006 in a lot of these oral medications and things like uh, uh, Dayquil and Sudafed and so on because pseudoephedrine was found to be uh, being used for to make illicit drugs, so they changed it, and now they've kind of figured out that this one doesn't really work, especially not if you take it as a pill. Uh, have a listen. Phenylephrine is an over-the-counter decongestant used in popular cold and allergy medicines like Sudafed, Dayquil, and Allegra. The drug has been around for 75 years, but an expert FDA panel just voted against its effectiveness as an oral medication, finding taking it as a pill or liquid for relief from a stuffy nose is no better than taking a placebo. FDA reviewers said modern testing found phenylephrine is metabolized so quickly that when taken by mouth, only trace levels reach the places it's needed. Drug makers reformulated with the ingredient after a 2006 law required an older drug, pseudoephedrine, to be moved behind the counter because it can be used to make methamphetamine. If the FDA follows through on the recommendation, that would likely force consumers to switch to the behind-the-counter pills or use the drug as a spray or in drops. It appears to be more effective when applied directly to nasal passages. I'm Jennifer King. So there you have it. I mean, you can still get pseudoephedrine behind the counter, right, from the pharmacist. But that stuff you just go grab, and I think a lot of us just go grab things, right? I'm so used to If I ever need it, I don't take it often. You just go into the pharmacy, grab a, a brand that you're familiar with, and walk out. But this is a really interesting development. So we thought we would dig into it to find out exactly what it is that has been determined and what it means for us if you use this kind of stuff. So joining me now is Dr. Michael Ryder. He's a professor in the Department of Pediatrics, uh, Physiology, and Pharmacology, and, and Medicine at Western University in London. He's been with us before. Dr. Ryder, welcome back. Thank you. Well, good seeing you again, Ben. Well, this is one of those headlines you see and you just kind of shake your head because you're like, what do you mean it doesn't work at all? I mean, not more than a placebo, at least according to these FDA advisors. Right. Well, that's very true. I mean, to understand this, you have to understand a bit that phenylephrine is, is, has been used in Canada and the U.S. instead of pseudoephedrine. Mm-hmm. We used to use pseudoephedrine for the same reason. Um, but because it can be used to make things like crystal meth, um, it's gone behind the counter in Canada and in some of the U.S. states has vanished altogether. Right. So the response by the industry was, well, let, let's see, phenylephrine, pseudoephedrine are kind of the same. So why don't why don't I see about, uh, you know, if I can use a different chemical, if I could use, a, you know, just a different chemical in our preparation. So they switched off phenylephrine. The only issue with that is pseudoephedrine is absorbed fairly well from the gut. Phenylephrine is not. So, and the FDA communication acknowledges this. So if you put a phenylephrine in a nasal spray and spray it in your nose, it'll cause less congestion because it's a, it constricts the blood vessels. It tightens them down. But if you take it by mouth, it goes in your stomach, hits the intestine, goes to the liver, gets in the bloodstream, and whatever tiny bits there might get to your, to your nose, but not enough to do anything. So it doesn't actually work. As a pharmacologist, I could see pharmacologically why it didn't make a lot of sense. But... If you step back and look at, at the clinical studies, they also say it doesn't work. So I think the FDA is entirely right. It's something we didn't surprise us. We've actually thought about that in Canada for a long time. So 20, as of 2011, actually, we have a position statement saying just don't use it. It doesn't work. Um, so, and, you know. Yeah, I, so- I mean, I, I gather the change with pseudoephedrine was made back in about 2006 because I remember the furor around it being used and, you know, packages of this stuff disappearing from pharmacies yeah. to be used to make you know, for drug labs and so on. And so in yeah. comes this other phenylephrine. 
Uh, but that was 17 years ago. I mean, they've saw, I think in America, they sold like $2 billion worth of this stuff last year alone in pill form. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, the question raises, why wasn't it done earlier? The answer for that is quite strictly priority and resources. So the FDA and Health Canada, and I have a lot of admiration for Health Canada because they're a good agency with very limited resources. Uh, so they have to prioritize what's high priority. And to be blunt, cough and cold is not a high priority. Mm. Uh, but it boils down to risk benefit. The other thing, of course, is that you have to remember that this is an over-the-counter preparation. So if this was a prescription drug that didn't seem to work, something would have happened. But it's not a prescription drug. It's something to buy over the counter. So you don't have to use a learned intermediary. Actually, if you go down to Shoppers or Rexall and use a self for checkout, you don't have you don't have to talk to a human being to get this stuff. Um, so so uh, it's it's something that Health Canada and FDA haven't had as a high priority. But that so and now that they're starting to look at it. They're saying, oh, that's a problem. Into uh, into it doesn't work. And the other issue with that is is that it's awfully hard to get a drug off the market if you're, if it's a, if it's over the counter. So, you know, in terms of whether you should use it or not, it's kind of all drugs are risk and benefit. There's no such thing as a, as a, as a risk-free drug. And some drugs we say, I'll take the risk. So if you have, you know, okay, this chemotherapy is going to make my hair fall out and get, make, me, get, make me risk for infections, but it'll cure my cancer. So you know what? I'll take it. But in this case, there actually is no known benefits, even though the risk, risk of side effects is pretty small. It's not zero. And so if there's no benefit, there's no degree of risk is okay. And that's what the situation with the phenylephrine right now. Yeah, because there was some talk, I guess, of, I mean, this is an obvious question. Well, why not just take more of it? And then there were right. some red flags around that. Oh, yeah. Well, it's especially in the combination products. So if it's in a combination with a set of menophen or some other combo, you could take actually a mod that could lead to an overdose. So, you know, so that it could be dangerous. So because very few preparations are phenylephrine alone. Most of them are combo products. So if you take more, it can cause a problem. And there is a natural tendency by some people to say, if one drug doesn't work, I'll take two uh, or maybe you take four. So that can be that can be an issue. It costs money. And I'm sure, as you know, the average Canadian isn't actually flush in money with money right now. So if you're going to spend money in medications, it should be money that meds are going to work. Um, and yeah. it gives you a false invitation. Now, the odd person will say, oh, it works for me. And I'm sure it does, but it probably doesn't work the way we think it does. It, it was interesting. I mean, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. How, how, how would it work? Because what the FDA advisors were saying is that this is no different from taking a sugar pill, which was, because, I mean, at least, at least in the phenylephrine sense of it. Yeah, because sugar pills sometimes work. And, and there's a very interesting study on a totally different drug about came out a couple of weeks ago. It's a drug for chronic cough. And it showed that, yeah, it worked for chronic cough. But most of the people in the placebo group got better too. And that, But what's interesting with this, this, this study was not that just that fact, but the, the authors explored why that might be. And what happens is, if you think you might get better, sometimes the brain will trigger off endorphins, which are the, the things we make that go into opiate receptors and make you feel better. So sometimes just taking something, to make, if you think something will make you feel better, sometimes you feel better. Right. The placebo that works. I exactly. Mean, it, so, it's, uh, the brain, interesting, yeah, interesting so stuff. It, it may, yeah, maybe some people who took, who took the preparation products thought they'd feel better, and they did feel better. And, and I'm not disputing that, but that doesn't mean you should take it. 
No, I mean, how do we, because I think a lot of us uh, are kind of conditioned to buy certain brand names that may have worked for us in the past. So when the pseudo ephedrine was taken out of of products, and I don't want to single out any particular one here, but Dayquil, Sudafed, these are ones that I've used in the past over the years, uh, that when you went back to the pharmacy, you would have forgotten there was a change in 2006 or maybe in and around that area to phenylephrine instead. So you'd continue to buy it no matter what. Um, What should consumers do now when it comes to this sort of this sort of stuff should we just abandon it all together or what do you recommend well i'm going to think a couple of things the first is um you know nothing not, none of this makes you get better and quicker it's just for symptomatic relief it's just to make you feel better so to make you feel better there's a couple of things you should do first you should rest and not try to assume you can go back to work second you should keep yourself well hydrated both in the air in your house but also you hydrated as well third if you have you know, discomfort or pain, there's t- acetaminophen and ibuprofen. That they're good for that. And you don't need to have it in comfort with anything else. Just the plain old stuff is fine. If the drip is giving you a cough, a teaspoon of honey actually is probably as helpful as anything that comes out there. If it's really troubling you as a, and you're an adult, a nasal spray might be helpful. Um, but I think that's what we have to think about. The other thing you have to think about um, is number two son's a surgeon. And the best, he loves taking care of people who are, who are, who are alive in World War II. Mm-hmm. That's he says because the greatest generation, because he says they don't complain, they do what they're told, and they don't expect to get better right away. So part of it is, is comes to the expectation that it's going to take a while to get better. Dr. Michael Ryder is with us, professor in the Department of Pediatrics, Physiology, Pharmacology, and Medicine at Western University. We're talking about uh, the FDA advisors announcing yesterday that phenylephrine, which is an ingredient you'll find in a lot of cold and allergy medication, in fact, does not work, at least according to them. So now it's up to the FDA to decide what to do next. Uh, we've been discussing the history of that and so on. Um, I suppose this, I mean, you talked about this as, as far as pediatrics is concerned a while ago now. Uh, what about yes. kids? Because I suppose this is this this rings true for whomever you're giving this stuff to. And often parents will be buying these, these sorts of products for congestion in their children, right? Well, and it's actually even more germane for kids because there's no evidence that anything works for kids. Right. You know, so there's no, you know, if you're an adult, a nasal spray might be helpful, but there's not even any evidence that that works, especially in little kids. Um, because, you know, we're, we're not wired the same as adults are. And that's why, you know, pediatrics is different than adult medicine. So our statement, we made a statement with Rand Goldman from UBC Back about 2011, which basically says nothing works, it's, you know, symptomatic treatment will get better. They'll get better with time. And we stand by that statement. So we're not recommending any cough and cold preparations. So no, I see, you know, behind I, the, I guess, yeah. So pseudoephedrine, uh, phenylephedrine, if I'm going to get that wrong again, all of it the same, essentially in the same boat when it comes to, to kids. Right. When it comes to over-the-counter cough and cold meds, we recommend if you're going to use anything, treat fever or discomfort with either acetaminophen or ibuprofen. Give lots of fluids and time and you'll get better. And if coughs are solving sim- troubling symptom, maybe a teaspoon of honey could help. And th- there's actually evidence from Ian Penn at University of Pennsylvania that that actually works, probably because the sugar um, calms the cough receptors down. But that's that's about it. I mean, when, when I trained in Detroit, there, a home remedy was whiskey and honey. And I think if you leave the whiskey out, the honey's probably okay. Yeah, that makes sense to me. How did this happen then? So if there was this sneaking suspicion uh, out there that phenylephrine probably didn't do much, if anything at all, how has it been right. on the market for so? I mean, you mentioned in Canada, it's tough to get a over-the-counter drug because you don't need any consult- consultation about it. Uh, we know when it comes to vitamins and so on. We've talked about that before. Um, yes. How did this manage to, to, to go on for so long? And what now? What happens now that the FDA has this information in their hands? Well, 
it went on so long because it's been around a long time. You know, if you are if, uh, part of part of the thing is it got grandfathered in because I think phenylephrine was first synthesized in 1939. Yeah, 75 years, I think. Yeah, it's been around for a while. Yeah, yeah. So it's been around for a long time. So ancient drugs aren't reviewed very often. So, and it's an ancient drug. It's there because it's there. It's been around a long time. And it was considered to fall into what they call grass, which is generally recognized as safe and is generally safe. Um, but it's not always safe. So now that this information is out there, it does put does mean that the commissioner of the FDA and our deputy uh, and our deputy ministers um, at here, at, here in Canada have to think of what they're going to do about this. Um, you know, because do we, do we take it off the market? I mean, I know the industry is already reacting back pretty furiously in the U.S. about how oh we have to keep it on the market. It prevents unnecessary emerge visits, et cetera, et cetera, and other hmm. arguments that I don't think hold a lot of water. Uh, but, you know, it is a $2 billion market, as you mentioned. So there's going to be pushback ministry on, on keeping it around. Um, and it depends a bit on how aggressive the regulator wants to get in fighting an industry that has, you know, has drawn a line in the sand and has a lot of resources. So it's going to be interesting thing. But in the meantime, I think what behooves us is public education, and doing what's actually what's best for you know children, you know patients and their families, and to my mind, that is not using a product that's not going to be that, that costs money, doesn't work, uh, and has side effects. Right. And in this case, I gather if you still want to use a product, some people just like to feel like they're being, uh, you know, taking initiative when it comes to these sorts of things. You've already said that the spray, the nasal spray, was found not to be in the same boat as as the oral uh, as the oral pill as the oral right. administration because of the, how it how it how it uh, how the system essentially absorbs it. And also, you can still get the behind the counter stuff, right? I mean, pseudoephedrine is still yeah. available out there. It's just not as easy to buy as it used to be, so people don't buy it as much. Right? Yeah, because they have to talk to the pharmacist about it first. And right. and you know, in this situation, it's not such a bad thing because I mean, pharmacists are are skilled professionals who have good education. They're a bit of a conflict of interest, and I come from a family of pharmacists, so I know this because, you know, when your store's income is derived from selling stuff, you know, it's a bit of a conflict to actually not sell something. Um, but that being said, pharmacists are professionals, and um, they're going to recommend what's best for the patient. So I think, you know, talking about whether a pseudoprodict product is a good idea, and, and as, as, as we mentioned before, Sometimes you just a spray because the way it works, it constricts blood vessels and the spray puts it right in the blood vessels of interest. So don't have to worry about anything getting in the way of it. So if it's really bothering you, or you're in some line of work where you actually have to have a, a clear, a, a, not uh, a runny nose, then the spray is available for adults. I wouldn't use it in kids. Um, and the other thing is, is that it will, you know, the good thing about it is it will get better. Yeah. And then you have the pseudoephedrine too, as you mentioned, if you want to talk to your pharmacist. Right. Well, this has been an interesting one, uh, Dr. Ryder, because again, it's just one of those things you're like, wait a second. This has been, this has been sold as a decongestant uh, for years and people yeah. have bought it by the boatload. And yet here we are. And essentially what the FDA, the advisors are saying is, yeah, it, do it doesn't work. I mean, it, it calls into question certain things. I mean, it makes people suspicious, I would think. Well, it does. I mean, it's we used to sell cocaine tooth drops. True. Um, so the world of drug regulation does does change considerably. So as we get more knowledge and understanding, the other thing about it is it's also it's also really a spotlight on the fact that you know a regulator can only do so much, and they've only got so many resources. So they you know the limits that a, re a regulator can do because the regulators aren't stupid; they figure this out with only so much they can do. 
Right. And also, as you mentioned, this was when phenylephrine became more more common. It took them a while to actually start to look at it again because it had been around for a long time. And you said it was it's generally regarded to be safe to use. So no harm done, really. Uh, So it took them a while to get around. There's other things to do other than look at whether this is actually working or not. Yeah. The other fires to put out. Yeah. Well, it's been interesting to watch this one be put out. Uh, Dr. Ryder, thank you so much for your time. Good seeing you, Ben. Good talking to you. that time of the week when we inter- when we invite a journalist from somewhere across the country who's doing interesting work. We thought we would check in on the story that's been ongoing now for a couple of weeks, but we haven't done yet, which is uh, the Manitoba election. Manitoba is just weeks away from electing a provincial government, just 10 days away from advanced voting uh, for the October 3rd election at this point. Recent polls show that the NDP under leader Wabkinu uh, have a very slim lead over Premier Heather Stephenson and uh, the Conservatives. In fact, uh, some polling out today showed that Stephenson is still the one of the least popular premiers in the country, but that her approval ratings are actually up. So some good with the bad there. There are 29. You need to win 29 seats to form a majority of the 57-seat legislature in Manitoba. The NDP, if it were held today, according to the most recent poll that I saw, would win 28 to 27 for the Conservatives, too for the Liberals. So, uh, you know, it's still very close. Now, the three main party leaders pitched their ideas on the economy, safety, healthcare, and other topics during their first appearance together of the campaign yesterday at a forum hosted by the Manitoba Heavy Construction Association. Here is uh, Progressive Conservative leader Heather Stephenson. And we know that it's so important. We have a plan to do that. We know that it's the only way that we'll be able to pay for the, for the investments that Manitobans expect from government in the way of health care, better health care, stronger health care for Manitobans. Right. That's her talking about some tax cut promises that she's made. So needless to say, there are a couple of issues here. And if you're anywhere in the country, these are the issues that will be front and center anytime there's an election these days. Affordability, uh, cost of living, housing, um, health care and others. Uh, here's Wab Canoe, the uh, NDP leader. We want to staff up the provincial health care system. And when we have the staffing resources to do so, build new emergency rooms starting at the Victoria Hospital. There you have it. I mean, the big thing here with this one is, of course, the NDP were in power for a very long time in Manitoba, right up to about 2016. Uh, Right now, there are two non-call them blue governments, provincial governments, in the provinces at least, not the territories, but in the provinces. One of them's in BC, an NDP government. The other one's in Newfoundland and Labrador, a liberal government. And just about everywhere in between is some shade of a conservative government, right? Now, of course, there were hopes in Alberta for the NDP that they would be able to win there. Rachel Notley fell short. Daniel Smith is still in charge. And uh, the next big hope was in Manitoba because they thought they had a pretty good chance. So still, do they still? Richard Cloutier is co-host of the news on 680 CJOB in Winnipeg, and he rejoins us now. Richard, welcome back. Thanks. Hey, great to talk to you again. And I was one of the moderators for that debate yesterday. And uh, uh, yeah, how was it? How was it? I mean, I watched well, bits and pieces of it. You know, I mean, those are always they're very local, right? And they're trying to yeah. hit the right notes. It, it there didn't seem to be a ton of it wasn't not a lot of fireworks. Not a lot. Um, there will be fireworks this coming Monday. I get to host them in our 680 CGOB studios for, for 90 minutes commercial free. So that will be I'm looking forward to that. Um, yeah. But there's been parallel campaigns going on. And I think the NDP have uh, more of a lead than I think that uh, a lot of the polling would would indicate. And I'll explain that in a moment. But there's been parallel campaigns. The NDP have been talking endlessly about health care simply because through the pandemic and after the pandemic, 
Manitoba, very much like all the other provinces, have have suffered on the healthcare side. And there were moves that the previous government made when Brian Pallister was premier to close down emergency rooms in Winnipeg and consolidate emergency rooms from six down to three that uh, during the pandemic not popular. And the healthcare strategy that the government here under the Progressive Conservatives has tried to accomplish um, has been patchwork and really got derailed during COVID. So that's very similar to what we see across the country. Whereas the Progressive Conservatives here and Heather Stephens and the Premier playing to their strengths, and that's on the economy, on tax cuts. And really the two haven't met yet as far as the Progressive Conservatives being held accountable for the health care in Manitoba and tougher questions on the economy to Wab Canoe and the NDP. And this really is a two-horse race. The Liberals not even fielding um, enough candidates to be in every riding in Manitoba will play a spoiler role. But when it comes to who's ahead right now, there's polling coming out next week. But um, Winnipeg is vote rich, and that's where the NDP still have a lead, especially in some of those key ridings in the suburbs. Uh, the progressive conservatives vote is not as efficient. They can almost run almost any candidate in some ridings in rural Manitoba and win by big margins. But that liberal vote is so key because traditionally in Manitoba, liberals will take votes away from New Democrats, allowing progressive conservatives to win with the liberal brand. And certainly uh, Justin Trudeau doesn't help here in, in good chunks of Manitoba. That liberal brand isn't as strong polling, um, you know, maybe 10, 12 percent. And that's not enough to allow progressive conservatives to win. So right now for we're held today, and I still subscribe to the theory, I don't know about you, that governments not necessarily are rewarded or reelected, governments are defeated. So not as much anger as we saw six months ago, but you cited at the top of the, of the segment the, the, the issue about popularity. And the fact is, is that Heather Stephenson has increased in popularity, but she's right up there at the bottom of the list with uh, with Ford from Ontario. So, yeah, yeah, it was only one way to go up, only one way to go for for Heather Stephenson at that point, which was slightly up. How much do you find? I mean, you mentioned it already. There's the the liberal brand hurting the liberal party in Manitoba. when you look at, at the influences coming from outside, so we know that for the NDP, this is a big one because it didn't work out in Alberta. They still obviously have the, a pretty solid provincial government in BC, but that's it for them. And they must have really been looking to Manitoba for another breakthrough because they've had a history of success in the province. Um, and then, of course, you have this surge in popularity of the federal conservatives, which you'd think, depending on what was going on in Manitoba, might lift that boat a little bit, um, just at least with energy on the ground. Are you seeing any of that? Not really. Like, uh, nope. you know, Pierre Polyev is is popular in certain core conservative circles, certainly in, in rural Manitoba. Um, but there, there's voters are smart. They can kind of tell the difference between, you know, federal brands and, and, and regional brands. The liberal leadership here has has struggled. The Liberal Party provincially has struggled for for years here in Manitoba. And, um, you know, every once in a while, people, you know, the punditry will get together and say, well, you know, this liberal leader can can make a difference. And maybe two years ago, there was thinking because the liberal brand was strong federally that it would be strong here. And it just didn't quite take hold. Um, So my sense here is are voters still as angry as they were post pandemic and are going to punish Heather Stephenson and the progressive conservatives 
Are they that angry? Probably not. Um, both the Wapkanoo, the, the leader of the New Democrats, um, he's he hasn't polled strongly personality-wise, stronger now than he was before. And Heather Stephenson has had plenty of time to prove herself as being a capable premier, has emerged more confident and somebody a bit more relatable. But Canoe, as far as the relatability factor, a whole lot more um, kind of the person you want to have a you know, a, a drink with, a coffee with, as opposed to Heather Stephenson. And that's part of it. It's that ability to connect with voters. I think both are struggling, but one is slightly better than the other on that. What are you hearing from people in general about, A, a their interest in this? Because I know, I mean, here we are, it's, it's coming mm, up quick and yeah. on, on October the 3rd. What are you hearing from people? I mean, what do they want to see? Because there are a lot of issues out there, right? There are a lot of things that people are concerned about, whether it be healthcare or housing or so on. What's been top of mind for a lot of voters in this one so far? A lot of people are um, distressed about the situation where we, again, we see this across the country. But in, in starting during the pandemic is, um, you know, people sleeping in in bus shacks um mm. we have a lot of encampments in the city of winnipeg and i think there's this sense that something needs to be done um and that's unique because it's always been an issue out there but not you know top of mind and for many winnipeggers who see this day in and day out they want something done about it and uh they want leaders to lead on this issue and so while you certainly see it you know, and you live it in British Columbia, um, we've seen this pockets right across the country and certainly in Winnipeg. And I'm fascinated by this because, you know, poverty is, you know, a, an issue always in Winnipeg. There are pockets of Winnipeg that, you know, are, are the child uh, poverty capital of Canada. And, it, you know, it engages a certain segment of the voters. But this time around, this really has gripped a lot of people and they're looking to their leaders. They're looking to the province for solutions here. And in that way, I think it caught a few of the leaders by uh, off guard. Now, Bob Canoe, his, his story is a, is a compelling one. And, you know, he's an indigenous leader that uh, has a background in broadcasting. He's certainly very articulate can, you know, he comes out and says, you know, how do you do? I'm Wab Canoe. And he uses that line over and over again. And, it, it you know, it's you chuckle about it. But his story is one early in the campaign. He made a, a speech that basically said, listen, yeah, I, I got in trouble with the law. I've had a drinking problem. And I'm an example of somebody that, given a second chance, will make the best of that second chance. And he just got the big endorsement from the former premier, uh, right. Gary Dewar, yesterday. And that's huge for him. And. And he was in our studio, Canoe was in our studio yesterday and just marveling at how Doer is able to connect with voters and still very much uh, well into his 70s now. Gary Doer still has that ability. And other premiers are measured against Doer in this province. You know, and, you know, is this leader a quarter Doer, a half Doer, a full Doer? And and that's where they all and we in the media tend to measure our leaders now. Right. Uh, we compare uh, them yeah. to Gary Doer.
the country we know and love, your home, my home, our home. Let's bring it home. Yeah, you might have heard that speech before. That was Pierre Polyev actually on a WestJet flight from Quebec City back to Calgary. It had been basically arranged to bring Conservative, Conservative Party delegates back home. So he was, uh, I guess he took over or was given the the intercom system to talk to the those gathered. And now there's been a bit of a kerfuffle about it. The union representing the cabin crew wants an apology uh, because they, they say they were thrown under the bus. They didn't approve this. And the CEO of WestJet has said they're going to review the policy uh, for this. Um, Richard Clutzi is the co-host of the news on 680 CJOB in Winnipeg. <laughs> this is a weird one because, you know, you can just imagine the plane is full of conservative delegates, right? So it's essentially bringing yeah. a big crowd of people back home and up comes Polyev's on the flight anyway and he gives them a little campaign speech. But I guess WestJet found, finds themselves in a bit of a, bit of a jam here. Yeah, I, I guess they do, but I, I have no problem with this. I'm thinking that years ago, I think it, I think it was WestJet, um, a guy gets on the intercom and proposes to his girlfriend. And she says yes, and everybody applauds, right? And, you know, and I know this is politics and this is political. And, you know, Unifor is not lining up to support uh, Pierre Polyev or any conservative candidate. I, I get that. Um, can we not have a little bit of fun and have a little bit of a laugh uh, every once in a while? I'm I'm my gut on this one is yeah I understand where Unifor is on this and then they have WestJet has to react to this but you know what the majority of the people on the plane uh did any of you know was there a maybe a new democrat back uh you know middle of the plane seat 12 yeah. by the window that complained about this you know um I, I have a hard I mean, time yeah, with this I one, mean, Ben. I really do. People can ignore things. Yeah, I mean, me too. I mean, listen, you know, if I had been him, maybe I wouldn't have given the speech, right? You just sort of say, yeah. hey, wasn't it great? Great to be here. What a great yeah. time we had. This has been, you know, but to sort of give you the same speech you'd heard the day before, maybe that's what's well, rubbed people you know, the, the wrong way. Because essentially, and, yeah, yeah. yeah the, and he was essentially given given, given sort of an open forum to, do, to, to give his usual speech. So I can see why WestJet, I think also what happened within yeah. WestJet is that the blames started to go around like who allowed sure. this right so that's what it, it became more of a big issue within WestJet itself well, but yeah it, I've got no problem with that I've got no problem yeah but but maybe the problem is Polyev just really struggles to connect with people right mm. and 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 a lot of our leaders have that you know they try to be cute or they try to say something and you know in this case you know you're chuckling about it but you know I listen to that and kind of go yeah, you're, you know, you're maybe trying a little bit too hard, right? And yeah. uh, sometimes you either got it or you don't have it. And and I know, you know, I'm thinking about he's not wearing glasses anymore, right? He's not slicking up the hair as much. But, you know, give me some sound policies to talk about. Um, and I would really love a brand of politics that's a whole lot more positive than negative. And I guess, you know, covering the Manitoba campaign, we're kind of getting into some of the negative here. But but oh, nationally, yeah. the, nationally, my frustration is just all these parties playing to their base. And it just really burns me big time, Ben, that, you know, you've got the tribe still happening and this kind of perennial minority government situation. Now, I get it that they're, the, the, the conservatives are ahead in the polls now. If it was held today, maybe we would see the reversal. But I'm still looking for a politics where uh, where leaders rise above and talk to people, you know, everybody on the plane, not just yeah. the conservative delegates.
Yeah, I get that. I mean, they were coming out of this big convention, which was yeah. a bit of a celebration. So, I, I, I mean, I get why he did it. But you're right. I think, honestly, if he'd come up and given a less blatantly uh, sure. political speech, that it probably would have gone over just fine. But because it was so obviously the same words that he'd used <laughs> the night before at the convention or two days earlier at the convention, it came off as being sort of – blatantly political and that put everyone in a bit of a hard in a bit of a bit of a jab well richard good luck with all the uh, campaign stuff you have coming up the debate and so on great to have you here hey great to talk to you again ben thanks so very much really appreciate it let's go back to justin trudeau we're going to talk about him again for the next little while this this is because this is a one of those this is one of those stories that i think has legs i think it's an interesting one because it matters a lot on so many different levels Back on April the 21st, the Prime Minister was in St. Thomas, Ontario, admitting that the government had to put a lot of money, about $13.2 billion, to convince Volkswagen to choose the community as the site of its massive new electric vehicle battery plant. He also had a bit to say about when he thought that would be a break-even proposition for the taxpayer. Have a listen. It will provide millions upon millions of batteries to power Canada's auto industry, which is one of the engines of our clean economy. And the economic impact of this project will be equal to the value of government investment in less than five years. That's the math that matters. Yeah, that's the math that matters. And of course, you can always get into trouble when you start throwing around math on an announcement like that. So you'll remember, of course, that once Volkswagen got their money, then Stellantis, who had already committed to building a battery plant in, in Windsor, then held out for more subsidies. They got those as well. So uh, recently, the parliamentary budget officer, who's an independent officer, uh, decided to take a look at the $28.2 billion that Ottawa and the Ontario government will spend in subsidies for those two plants and found that it will not take five years but more like 20 years to break even. Now, there's a lot of math going on here, but just remember, the Prime Minister said five, and the Parliamentary Budget Officer says 20, and that's a big, big difference. Uh, Yves, Yves Giroux found the government was very optimistic in assuming that all this ecosystem around electric vehicles would be developed as the result of these two plants and the subsidies that the government provided. Um, now, of course, the government's come out and said, well, he's not taking enough into consideration here about supply chain benefits and so forth and how this will position Canada as a place for further investment. Here is Innovation Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne. But if you read the report, the Parliamentary Budget Officer himself says, I'm only considering 8.6% of the impact. So clearly, if you look at the rest of it, which is the vast majority, you come to a different number, you come to a much shorter payback. Right. But this this is about transparency. This is a lot of money that's being poured in to lure these companies into this country. And I think we all deserve to know whether it's going to pay off or not. Jerome Tessarelli is a senior fellow with the McDonald Laurier Institute and a professor in the finance department at the British Columbia Institute of Technology. And he joins me again. Thank you so much, Jerome. Welcome back. Um, hello, uh, Ben. Thanks for having me back on the show. So tell me about this, because I think there's been a lot of, uh, you know, the parliamentary budget officers looked at this a couple, in a couple of different ways now, and he comes out this week with this one. It, clearly, he looked at that five-year calculation. So break it down a bit. What was he looking into, and what is it that he's saying about this five years versus many, many more years to break even? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, they they are looking at at they're comparing apples and oranges uh, uh, somewhat. The two subsidies totaling the twenty eight billion dollars they're based for a couple plants that are going to be producing electric batteries. Okay, now what the federal government study looked at is that they looked at 
not just the economic activity that those battery plants would bring directly, but they also said, well, then we're going to need critical minerals that go into them. So there's going to be mineral exploration activity, and there's going to be mining activity to get them out of the ground and processing those minerals, and there's going to be assembly of the electric vehicles so those batteries can go into them, etc. So they looked at the entire entire supply chain of creating EVs, and they said when we look at all this incremental activity that could be created, uh, and all the in incremental tax revenue, we'll be able to recover our uh, our subsidies, our twenty billion dollars in uh, in under five years. So that's how that's how the federal government uh, looked at it. But when the PBO uh, looked at the same at the same subsidy, they said, well, it's based on these electric vehicle um, factories, so that's what we're going to apply it to. We we're not going to assume that there's going to be all this extra uh, economic activity and spin-off because it hasn't occurred yet and it doesn't necessarily have to occur in Ontario or even in Canada. Right. Uh, you know, after after all, we have a free trade agreement and we've got free flow of, of, of goods and services with regard to the auto sector, especially between the two countries. And so a lot of those incremental business activities, potentially, they can be set up in, in Ontario or Quebec or wherever, or they can be set up in the United States. So the PBO's office, they just looked at the battery uh, uh, incremental business activities and therefore, you know, it came to a much longer payback period of 20 years. Right. But you've looked at this in the past, too, and said, well, wait a second, a lot of what they're claiming to be the economic benefits of this um, don't make a ton of sense. I mean, first of all, you're right. The, you know, if you look at the mining side of this, and there's a lot of complications there, that could still happen without these plants. If you look at the employment issues, uh, there's, you know, there's record low unemployment in all in many of those areas so some of the arguments that the government has put forward to say that this is going to pay back it's pay for itself in very rapidly are probably worth questioning i would think at least according to what you've looked into yeah well well that's right i mean when 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 any type of business or the government is looking at investing new money or spending new money to something then they should always be uh, only concerning what will be the new result the new activity Okay, and quite frankly, even if these EV battery uh, production facilities were in uh, Michigan or somewhere in the United States, um, it's very likely Canada would still be able to supply a lot of the um, uh, minerals and and uh, uh, components that go into them, and perhaps some of the EV assembly, because we've got a, a quite a seamless free trade agreement with the, with the auto sector with the United States. So whether they're located here and we paid the subsidies or whether we didn't pay the subsidies, we probably will likely have a lot of incremental activity in any event. So it's not a little, we can't really say that the subsidies are are actually going to uh, uh, incrementally generate more business and more tax revenue for the for the government because it may, a, it may well have occurred anyways, even without the subsidies. Right. Of course, I mean, in the background of all this, and we talked about this the last time we spoke, is is the is the Inflation Reduction Act and all the money that mm-hmm. that the Americans are pouring into this. So it sort of creates an unlevel playing field. And there have been many out there who've said from the get-go that the last thing that Canada should start doing, that what we should be doing is try to figure out how to bank on that without spending too much money, not competing with them for for the on the subsidy level, because clearly the Americans are going to spend us every single time. Uh, now that you've had a few months to look at this, the Stellantis deal is a done deal, the Volkswagen 
deal is a done deal. Do you still have the same conclusions that this mightn't have been the way to spend this money? Well, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't really have any different conclusion than that. Um, you know, you've already mentioned that the unemployment rate is always uh, already quite low in St. Thomas and uh, and Toronto, etc. Things like that. So, so uh, and and EV um, the EV industry is somewhat different than internal combustion uh, manufacturing in that it doesn't employ as many people. So uh, you know we, we have to we have to be looking forward. And the other thing is is that what so we have to look at what sort of business opportunities uh, are we giving up? Are we not doing by by providing those subsidies? Okay, because just if we if we if we spend the money and and uh, and entice the battery manufacturers to to set up, then if we already have relatively low employment and the economy is already running at relatively high levels of, of output, then we have to be giving something else up. So then the net incremental benefit of those subsidies, again, can be questioned. They likely won't be as, as high as we expect. Sure, they might increase some, uh, some economic activity in the auto sector, but using those resources to, to create that business may well cause some other sectors of the economy to not be as uh, not be growing as much and producing as much. Uh, Jerome, you pointed this out before too. Part of this feels, and I, I know we're beating it, beating a drum here, but part of this feels like it's because this government, unfortunately, hasn't had a plan for this. Like not a real one. They haven't sort of said, "Here's what we want to do. Here's how much we want to spend on it." And anything more than this is a red line for us, and we're out because we'll find another way. And it feels like that plan doesn't exist. So it's sort of the big shiny object problem, where the you know, oh sure, Volkswagen, this will this will sound good. This will get us votes in southwestern Ontario. Well, well, yeah, and I think we could point to the fact that they had to reopen the negotiations and from originally offering a subsidy, and I can't remember the exact number, but it's five say, billion say, to Stellantis, right? Was that it? Five billion originally, yeah. and then they came back for more. Maybe, yeah, maybe not that, but yeah. Stellantis yeah, came yeah, back for more. Yeah, a little bit less than that, and then it came yeah. back uh, with with the triple or quadruple the, the 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 amount that you know those are kind of a knee jerk type. Type reaction. So uh, yeah, I, I don't. I, I think we'd be hard pressed to say that there was a, a clear, crystallized overall all strategy here uh, on the approach. Yeah, uh, tell me a bit about some of the other things you looked into because a lot of people out there understand that you know we want to have new innovative interest industries in this country. We just don't want to have to pay through the teeth for them, right? I think that's the problem with this one is that it felt like the numbers just started to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And when Stellantis came back for more, which of course they were going to do, you could have, anyone could have predicted that. Uh, you started to think, well, wait a second, is this really just throwing like it's sort of that law of, you know, that, that whole law around of committed resources. You've already promised it. You've already spent money on it or promised money on it. So you can't back out now. And it feels like maybe we got taken in this one. Well, basically, we're trying to uh, we're trying to uh, compete with uh, the United States in the in the race to the bottom to uh, you know to attract these uh, these plants. Um, there, you know, there's a couple things here. Uh, not only is it is, is it a subsidy where we're we're quite used to giving auto companies uh, subsidies, but normally it's for the production of the facility. Uh, in this case, we're actually uh, subsidizing the uh, battery manufacturers to. For the production of every battery they produce, 
and that's very different uh, from from the past. And the other thing is is that typically we have a free trade agreement so that companies can can specialize in their areas of, of comparative advantage, what the countries do well, and then they can trade, and both countries can mutually benefit from that from that open and free trade. Both companies is not a zero sum game, uh, but when we're competing again, through offering the subsidies, well, then it, it undermines and undermines the benefit of the, of the free trade agreement. And it, it undercuts the, 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 even the reason for it, the benefits for it. Uh, yeah. So that's all quite, quite problematic. You know, the other thing, Ben, is that, is that this seems to be a part of, a, of an overall approach we're seeing at a high level with the, the, you know, the current, the current uh, federal government in that they're mandating you know, national electrification. They're mandating minimum EV sales over time and then going to complete EV sales in Canada. They are offering uh, subsidies in clean tech in, in the areas of $70, $80 billion. Um, you know, it, it's like the federal government is, is, is directing the economy now. They're not letting the marketplace uh, that traditionally has created all the wealth and, and value. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's in turn the government is trying to direct where that ought to go. And then history has not shown that that, that that usually does not work out very well. Yeah, even even with good intentions, it doesn't tend to work out very well. Uh, Jerome Jesserelli, as always, I appreciate your time. Well, thank you very much, uh, Ben. I enjoyed it. There's a teenage girl uh, in line ahead of me at security and they stopped her to search her backpack because something went off in the machine. And so the TSA guy, he searched around it and he pulled out the thing that went off and it was a magic eight ball. And he told her, he was like, well, technically this is a blunt object and it could be used as a weapon. So I'm not sure if you can bring it in your carry on and I need to go get my supervisor. So they brought over like two or three more TSA agents. They're all looking at this magic eight ball, trying to decide what to do. And I was in line behind her losing my mind because I was like, just ask the magic eight ball. Logan Gunselman is a comedian. Yeah, yeah, that pretty much sums up modern security at airports. It's hard to think back. I mean, I traveled in the 90s and before, so it's hard to think back to those days, pre-9-11 really, where you could just kind of wander into an airport, you know, wander through security quite quickly, make it up to your gate. You, know, you didn't really have your boarding pass, your ID checked until you were about to get onto the plane. It was all pretty laid back. Not completely. I mean, there were layers of security then, but certainly nothing compared to what happened post 9-11, right? And it is probably one of those places. I mean, we were talking about the anniversary of 9-11 this week on Monday. And one of the lasting impacts of that day that we still see even as that day sort of fades a little bit from memory is at airports. I mean, they changed radically after 9-11 for obvious reasons. Um, But these days, I mean, look at all the things that have happened even since 9-11. So the reason you take off your shoes, not all everywhere, but certainly if you're in the States, you have to. That was the the arrest of the so-called shoe bomber. That was in December of 2001. Then there was the liquids thing. Now you have to take your liquids out. You can't carry more than 100 milliliters on board if in your carry-on. You have to put them in clear plastic bags. Um, that was all after the UK authorities stopped an apparent plot to blow up passenger planes using liquid explosives in 2006. But of course, here's the issue. That's 20, nearly, you know, in one case, 22 years ago. In the other one, you know, 17 years ago. And we're still doing this stuff when we go to fly. 
The list goes on. Full body scanners. I remember those brought in. You know, you have to go and put your hands over your head. I think those were brought in after the underwear bomber was arrested. I think that was 2009, maybe a little bit later. But all of these things happened long ago. And yet all these security places, security uh, measures are still in place. Laptops were banned for a bit. Then they were allowed to bring them back on. You have to take them out of your carry-on luggage, though, when you're going through security. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Now, you can get pre-clearance programs to speed things up. But it's become a whole new ballgame for most of us at the airport. You have to plan to spend, you know, an hour in line in security before you get to your gate. And that just wasn't the case a long time ago. So we thought we would ask, okay, we get the fact that it's better to be safe and safe than sorry, that the security is necessary in a lot of places and that we've learned over the years. But how much of this security is still necessary? How much of it do we really have to take all the liquids out of our bags and and do it? Like, is that really still a thing? Do we really still have to take our shoes off? Does that really matter these days? Is there not other ways around it? Uh, so we thought we'd ask Jeff Price because he's considered one of the world's most uh, – he's one of the world's leading experts in aviation security. Um, he was assistant – security director at Denver's International Airport for a long time. He's now a professor in the Department of Aviation and Aerospace Science at Metropolitan State University of Denver. And he joins me now. Jeff, thanks for your time tonight. Thank you for having me. It's hard to, I think we've been talking about, you know, the anniversary of 9-11 this week and thinking about all that changed after that. And one of the things that we continue to witness is every time you go to an airport, uh, you're still faced with many of the changes that happened in the aftermath of 9-11 and in the ensuing years. Absolutely. The the one thing that has changed really since 9-11 is we've continued to try and progress our security measures, uh, whereas prior to 9-11, we were just really trying to maintain them. And it, it's a very different world than what it was before 9-11. It's almost uh, heads and tails in terms of difference from what it used to be. Uh, we used to not have to go through the, the liquids, the you could keep your shoes on. Uh, for those of us that carried laptops at the time, you could keep those with you. You didn't have to take them out. Uh, you could actually even carry knives on the plane of up to four inches in blade length prior to 9-11. It was, it was just a very different world. It was. When I think back to that time and even flying into the U.S., which was always, always slightly more, uh, you know, the security was slightly more apparent than it was in Canada at the time. But it always felt like the job of security was sort of to stay out of the way, to be kind of invisible. And as soon as 9-11 happened, it was the opposite. It was, it was to be very visible. It really was. And that was uh, being in security prior to 9-11 at the uh, at Denver International and, the, and its previous airport, Stapleton International. That was really the messaging that we got from the airlines uh, and the industry was keep it moving, stay out of the way, meet the regulatory minimums, and let's let's keep traffic going. And in fact, the biggest thing the, the airlines were worried about prior to 9-11 was that the uh, suitcases going in the overhead bin were getting too large. Right. Um, so they just put these templates on the front of the x-ray machines. So we were really, I think, not going the right direction prior to 9-11 with that. Right. When we look at what happened in the immediate aftermath, because we think of the things that came in after 9-11, which were a lot more checking of baggage and so on. But there's been several other things since. I mean, we forget that the shoe bomber arrest was actually in December of that year. And then a few years later, I remember being in, in the UK when the, when the liquids plot came down. Then we had the, I, I think after the liquids, um, the laptops. I mean, there's been a whole series of things that have become seen as potential vehicles for an attack since then. There really has. And 9-11 and kind of opened the door for that. And you're right. A lot of people don't remember that the, the shoe bomber was just a few months um, afterwards. 
and that's okay. So now we got to take off our shoes, and then we're we're into uh, putting our liquids in separate bags and having those inspected because our system at the time really couldn't inspect those, and uh, restricting that. And there was the laptop uh, bombing that occurred. I think it was 2015, 2016, right in that time frame. And but the industry really it has to be both reactive and proactive. We have to be reactive to the existing threats that are coming, but we have to be proactive to the the future threats. And since we don't always know what the future threats are, uh, that's really the, the most difficult part. When one looks back and thinks, I think the last one was maybe, and you mentioned, I think there was one with the laptops, which was a little more recent, but I think the liquids or uh, there was another one with the underwear bomber. I think that was 2009. And that's when all the body scanners came in. It feels like it's been a while since, I mean, and good, there hasn't been an attack on uh, civil aviation in America since 9-11, a successful one at least. Uh, but sometimes when you look at all the things we now have to do at the airport, you sometimes wonder if they're all necessary. The liquids, for instance, I think is about to go away or be changed somewhat. But are all these things reassessed? Are, do you think they're all still necessary? I think right now they're still necessary because we're in a transition phase right now. They're transiting, they're transitioning uh, the computerized tomography machines from the uh, what we've been using to screen check bags for years. We're starting to pull those up to the checkpoint. Those will be able to detect the liquids better. Um, in fact, the existing technology can can do a pretty good job of that. Uh, just TSA doesn't want to have to deal with everybody suddenly starting to carry liquids. Right. And, you know, when we've kind of conditioned everybody to, to do one thing uh, until we get those more advanced scanners in place. So I think we're, we're headed the right direction. Uh, it just takes a lot of time to integrate that. And, and also, it's it really becomes priority. Um, we could have done all of the things we did after 9-11. Within a few years, we could have done that before 9-11 had we had the the impetus to really do it, uh, but we didn't until 9-11 happened. So I, I think we go along at a steady pace. Unfortunately, uh, we don't accelerate that until something else happens. Right. I suppose you, you mentioned that you have conditioned passengers to do this now. So why you know why take it away at this point it'll take them a while to readjust to it right it's i mean if if it provides some measure of security i guess there's always been some debate like the shoe thing for instance has always been one of those ones that comes up a lot because some airports around the world do it some don't and then you wonder okay well wh- why is this still a thing it's inconsistency in the system and, and part of the challenge is uh, everybody gets the memo on what you have to do and what you don't have to do but there there's really kind of a hesitation on the part of some individuals over certain airports, uh, whether that's TSA or or the airport security personnel that are hesitant and say, well, I'd still rather continue to do that for whatever reason, uh, which generates inconsistency in the system, uh, which some people would argue is good, but it, it does disrupt the flow of the traffic through those airports uh, as passengers kind of have to relearn different procedures as they go through different airports. So it's got its good and its bad points, but what we need is consistency uh, still with random elements which are programmed into the system, but but not just kind of haphazardly deciding which rules we're going to follow on which particular day. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure you fly a lot. So the the idea, I mean, those wait lines now have become very, I mean, especially post-pandemic, if you throw the pandemic into all this, I mean, those wait lines have gotten really, really long. I mean, everyone wants to fly safely. Right? I think that's primordial. One of the big issues, of course, post-9-11 is people didn't want to fly anymore. They were afraid to. And now a lot of these measures came in and they sort of provided a bit of a security blanket as well. But those lines are getting long. They're getting longer. Uh, I'm a member of PreCheck and I'm a member of Clear because... I want to get to the front of those lines. I don't want to wait for two hours. Uh, and frankly, if I got to wait for two to three hours to get through a line at some airports, 
I'm going to start reevaluating and, you know, okay, let's, let's meet over zoom or some other, other format. And that's really what the pandemic brought us was alternate methods to get together instead of flying. So now flying has a competitor and people still want to meet in person. People still want to do things in person, but if it gets to a tipping point, they're going to go to alternate methods. And uh, now they have that option. Right. So the balance, the, the need to balance security and convenience is still there, obviously. Exactly right. And that's that's one of the things is you can always say that we need more security uh, in the system because there's this gap or that gap. At some point, you you hit a point where the system is bogged down and no longer works. So you're, you're going to have to learn to live with a certain amount of risk in the system. Uh, our job is really deterrence. And let's let's make sure it doesn't happen at, at our airport on our watch. Um, if you know, you, you might not be able to stop crime and terrorism, but you can you can defer it, you can deter it, you can make it go somewhere else, you can relocate it. And uh, that's that's really the best we can do with that. So here we are 22 years later after 9-11. I imagine that there are some of these, and you mentioned it already, some of these um, things that we've gone through, these routines that we now go through quite quite automatically, actually, at airports, um, are probably up for reassessment at some point. Because I understand technology is advancing as well over the last 20 years, enabling us to have other layers of security that might not be as inconvenient to the passenger themselves. Exactly. That's that's where we're getting to the point is uh, I see it's getting close to a tipping point where the technology is going to be there in the checkpoint area. Uh, TSA has got a learning curve with this new computerized tomography uh, scanners that they've got at the checkpoints at a lot of airports. Uh, right now, they're actually slowing the lines down and instead of speeding them up. But once they get through that learning curve and learning how to how to assess that imagery, uh, ideally, that moves bags faster. Uh, the body imaging technology uh, continues to develop. The, the ultimate goal is really uh, like walking down a corridor mm-hmm. and even holding your bag in your hand. Uh, if anybody ever remembers the old movie from the 80s with Arnold Schwarzenegger, Total Recall, where right. he walks through this x-ray machine and you literally see his x-ray of the skeleton, uh, that, that's kind of ultimately where we're going. We don't want to see your skeleton, but we don't want to have intrusive security. So that's that's the the ultimate goal here in the screening process. Yeah, we're never going back to to post uh, to pre nine eleven where you could just kind of wander up and wander through it. It was as easy as going to the bus station sometimes, and now, of course, that's even the bus stations have changed. That's all changed uh, drastically. How about what we don't see behind the scenes? Because I imagine that too has evolved in a really significant way in the past twenty years. It really has, and that that's the behind the scenes is where uh, a lot of the the action really takes place because you've got. Some of these major airports, you have 30,000, 40,000 workers at those airports. And prior to 9 11, uh, the background check for those workers was minimalistic. It was, let's take a look at their employment history. And that was it. And then let's hand you a badge to walk you walk right out on the airfield air with the aircraft. How does your employment history really relate to whether you're a potential terrorist or not? We had literally criminals working at airports because. Most airports didn't even do a wants and warrants check. They weren't required to. So we were, you know, we were doing what we were required to. Nowadays, airport workers go through a criminal history record check. Uh, they go through a, uh, a security threat assessment, which is sort of a, a check against the terrorist watch list. Uh, we're going to check it against wants and warrants. So we're doing everything we can uh, reasonably at this point to make sure that the people working behind the scenes at the airport aren't going to uh, be criminals or carry out a terrorist attack. 
obviously the system is never going to be perfect, but we're doing a lot more than we used to. And I think the other thing a lot of people didn't realize is we had an air marshal program on 9-11. There were all of 33 air marshals working for the Federal Aviation Administration who used to control aviation security uh, prior to 9-11. That's an actual number. That's that's not just exaggeration. Wow. And, you know, today TSA took over that program. Now now we're in the thousands. Uh, They don't obviously give the the actual number. They don't want people doing the math. But uh, those are just some of the behind the scenes things that a lot of people don't see. Well, Jeff, I really appreciate your insight on this. Thank you so much. Thank you, man. I appreciate you having me on. I also don't like the fact that when you get married as a woman, you just kind of give up your last name. Like you really, it's nice to take your husband's name, but then you're like, oh, this thing I've had my whole life, that's my whole identity that my great grandparents came through Ellis Island with. I'll just throw it in the trash. This guy seems cool. Bye. Like that's... Nikki Glazer uh, on a Netflix special there about uh, about taking your husband's name when you get married. Now, this is sort of limited to opposite sex marriages because the data out there, and there's not a lot of it, but there is some, is pretty much focused on opposite sex marriages. There's not much on same-sex marriages so far just yet. But that tradition of taking uh, the husband's last name amongst brides is still very strong in 2023. Uh, there was just some research done by Pew Research Center in the U.S. that finds that four in five brides change their name. Women change their name, take their husband's name after they get married. 14% only kept their last names. Just 14%. I was a bit surprised by that. Uh, The youngest women were most likely to have done so. A quarter of respondents between the ages of 18 and 34 who got married kept their maiden names. Hyphenated names uh, are less common, which uh, only about 5% of couples took that route. So I should explain where my name comes from very quickly. So back in the 70s, and Quebec's an interesting place here because it's very hard in Quebec now and has been for many decades for uh, a woman to take their husband's name even when they're married. They make it very difficult. It's, it's a complex situation. So Quebec's always been a bit of an outlier here. But prior to that, when I was born in 1970, I was born out of wedlock, I can admit. So I got my mother's name. In the hospital, you were given your mother's name. That's how it worked. So they tacked my dad's name onto it later. So Hara's my mom. Burn is my dad. They were never married. So we lived in a household where all three of us had different family names. One was O'Hara, one was Byrne, and then there was me, O'Hara Byrne. I was both of them. So, I mean, I come at this from a slightly strange perspective. But I was really interested to, to know that so many women still keep, um, still take their husband's name. And, and in fact, it, 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 it rings true because a lot of people that I know uh, do the same. Of course, in the broadcasting business, a little bit less because a lot of the women that I've worked with over many, many years built careers based on their names that they... Uh, based on their maiden name. So they keep those names later into life. Not always. Sometimes they change them officially, but still keep their maiden names when they're on air. But I just thought it was a really interesting sociological phenomenon because so much has changed. So much continues to change around us. And yet when it comes to this one uh, quite old tradition, obviously, it continues, at least for 80% in the US. Uh, uh, these numbers are American, of course. Um, but I thought why why is that why does it continue to be this way why does this tradition remain so unshakable emily schaefer or emily fitzgibbon schaefer is an associate professor in the department of sociology at portland state university in oregon she's done research on this one of the few who's actually done some research on this so she has a great amount of knowledge on the numbers and why this happens and she joins me now emily thank you so much Oh, thank you for having me. I love talking about surnames. It's such a, you're right. There's so, people talk about this all the time. And yet when you look out into the scientific literature, there's very little 
out or there's not much at all out there. Uh, we had this article, this Pew Research, and this article by the New York Times. Did those those numbers surprise you at all? It's still four fifths of U.S. women change their names uh, or brides, I should say, change their names still. No, I mean it doesn't surprise me. This this is a very interesting. I've been studying this since around 2010. It's just really interesting from a sociological point of view. We've seen so many changes in um, women's lives, in particular. Um, in the last 60, 70 years, women entering the labor force and everyone sort of getting on board with that because who can afford to um, live on one income in most households, right? Um, and, you know, women's lives are drastically changing, but this is one cultural phenomenon that just seems to stick with women taking their husband's last names. Um, and I, of course, I have opinions on that as a sociologist, why that is. Um, but yeah, it's it's a very interesting puzzle, and that's that's why I like to study it. Yeah, sociologically, it's enduring, which is interesting because so much yeah. change, so much has changed so fast. We feel over the last, you know. 25, 50 years, and yet this endures. It's interesting because I should have said you're Emily Fitzgibbon Schaefer. And, yeah, and you and I you am. got and, and you got involved in this. Um <laughs> like so like so much. You sort of got interested in this from personal experience from where you grew up. Yes, yes. My mother kept her name. She was this sort of reformed hippie from Vermont that had to move to Pennsylvania because my dad got a, a job in York, Pennsylvania. And I remember other people's reaction. It was totally normal to me that my mom kept her own name, but other people had reactions to it. In fact, when I was a child, a man I was babysitting for asked me if my parents were living in sin because she <laughs> had a different last name, which at the time I was very defensive and say, no, they're married. But now as an adult, I can't help but think, what a horrible question to ask a child. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that is definitely where my interests, my interests began. Yeah, I, I, me too. O'Hara Byrne is O'Hara is my mom, and Byrne is my dad, and that's how. And I, they weren't married, and I got my mom's name at birth, got my dad's name tacked on, and so I guess the seven. I mean, the seventies and the eighties were a slightly, slightly different time. <laughs> right. What do you think? What do you think is going on here? Why do you think this is so enduring uh, it, yeah. when so much has changed? You know, sociology does study this. Um, and the things that we see changing are the things that as long as a woman can say that it's for her family and she's putting her family first, then she can sort of get away with anything. So the example I give is women entering the labor force. People are on board with that now. When women first started entering the labor force, people were very concerned with children. Um, they were very concerned, like what's going to happen to the families if women are working. But now people sort of realize it's good for families that women have jobs. I mean, most people, not everyone. Mm -hmm. um, and that it's not going to hurt children if their if their mother works. Um, and so women can go to the workforce and still say, you know, I'm doing this for my family. We need this money. Um, this cultural idea that women really still need to be putting their families first, especially if they're married and especially if they have children. Um, that's that's still with us. And if women can't come up with a good enough example, good enough reason why they want to keep their name other than I just like it. I mean, and I'm using air quotes when I say good enough reason, please. Yes. No. Um they they tend to go with traditional because it's not worth the fight of trying to keep their name. They see that not having a family name, the same name as their kids and, you know, men giving the kids their wives last name. If they were to keep their own names, that's even more rare, although I don't have good data on it. So I shouldn't mm -hmm. speak about it. Um, but yeah, so if they can't say this is what's best for my family, 
they're probably not going to do it because people are going to look down on them. And that's, that's what endures this idea that really women need to be putting their family first. Right. And I, I guess in some senses there is still, and I know this is sort of has different groups and there's different attitudes towards it in different groups within society in the U S especially where the research has been done. Right. Uh, but I guess there is still a bit of a bit of a, a you call it a backlash somewhat about, against women who keep their names once they're married, keep their maiden names. Yes. Yes. Um, so I will say I did, you know, this was a survey experiment where I described a woman and a man who were having a little bit of a disagreement um, about how much she was working. He wasn't really happy with how many hours she was putting in. And in the experiment, the one thing I varied, the manipulation, the thing that was different between folks is her last name. Was it the same as her husband's or was it not? And that wasn't the, that wasn't the main part of the story. The main part of the story was how much she was working. And what I found was if men, that didn't have a lot of education who had less education than say a bachelor's degree if a woman had a different last name than her husband same behavior just different last names she was a less committed wife she wasn't a less capable wife she was just less committed her husband would be more justified in divorcing her um <laughs> she should be allowed fewer days late the whole vignette was about how many days um she was working late and should he, how many days should be, he be okay with that? And fewer if her last name was different. So it's, we call that a backlash somewhat where people want to punish women if they're not living up to this cultural expectation of doing the right thing, um, which is, you know, putting their family first or their husbands first. I was interested in this Pew research that only 14% of women mm -hmm. get their last names, uh, mm -hmm. but there was a big age gap too. I mean, that's not, necessarily a completely unexpected but uh younger women 18 to 34 a quarter of them kept their kept their maiden yeah yeah there's a big there's a big variation so it'll be interesting to see um you know i want to see more data like my data is from 2010 i would love to get another sample um but that is you know it is suggesting that more women are keeping their names if you compare my data to um this pew research data which is interesting that it's it's ticking that way what i found really interesting about the pew research was the number of women today who said they would keep their names compared to the women who actually did keep their names right. um, and how that changes um, before and after marriage. Of course, you know, these women are younger in the before marriage, just by necessity of not having been married yet, um, et cetera, et cetera. But like what changes from plans into um, what actually happens? That's an interesting space. It is. And we, and when, uh, and when you looked at it as well, and I think this is sort of, this sort of pans out across the, across the research, um, certainly women who have careers where their name is important. So for instance, you know, I'm in, I'm in broadcasting or in journalism. Uh, many yes. women have made careers with their names, with their maiden yes. names, and they, and then lose not having that maiden name. Uh, and I guess that's, that's kind of universal. I mean, it would be the same in, in, in teaching. It would be the same in a whole bunch of different industries where you're known as such. And therefore yes. it's a bigger commitment to then drop. Yes, that yes absolutely. Um, and as we push the marriage rate, we push the marriage. I mean, the marriage rate is going like at age, the, age that people get married is getting older and older and older. And so women have longer times in their careers before they get married. Um, and I do think that the excuse, again, I'm using air quotes of, I can't because of my career changed my name is seen as a valid one. When I talk to people about this, often they bring up stories of, oh, my sister-in-law didn't change her name, but she couldn't because she had, you know, they're trying to make excuses for why she didn't. And they're trying to tell me in their own way, she's not selfish. She just 
has a career where it would have hurt her career, um, which I find really interesting. So, yeah. It is. A hyphenated name seems like, I mean, I have a hyphenated name, so I can attest, and, and not that long a one, so I can attest to the fact that it can be a bit yes. cum, be a bit cumbersome. But yes. about 5% in this, this latest research, about 5% of couples uh, decided to at least have both names. Or yes. I suppose the, the, the wife would have both names. I'm not sure about, about the husband in this, right. but the wife right. would have both names. Right. I think more often it is women hyphenating rather than both of them hyphenating. But, you know, I think this is never going to take off as the solution for women, um, especially since it's a it's a one generation solution. Right. If we all start hyphenating our names, yes. um, we'll be like Spanish nobility within 50 years. Yeah. Yeah. There's these 40, 40 word names. Yeah. Right, exactly. And so I don't think it's ever going to take off as as the solution. But for a lot of people, that's that's what works and seems to, you know, be the solution for them. You looked well, into something I that I thought that. was interesting because I don't think I've ever I don't know that I've ever met someone who's done this. But you looked into men in opposite yeah. sex marriages because we don't have yeah. a lot of data on same sex marriages yet. Uh, you look at men in opposite sex marriages who took their wife's name. And I thought that and it's not negligible. It, it's there. It's not. It's not. It's three three percent of my sample. Three percent of my sample said they had taken their wife their wife's last name, um, which I found fascinating because typically we treat this when we talk about it as a zero that it never happens. Um, but definitely a small small percentage did, and I, I studied it a little bit to see who are these guys and what what predicts which men are the ones that are going to do this. So when you look at this, and we could talk about the men who do this, but also just generally, uh, how does this break down? How does this break down? How about the men who take their wives' names? Who are they? Yeah. So you have to be careful because it is only 3%. We're talking about small sample sizes. But what I found was actually that um, like women, it was men um, who maybe don't have careers that it would hurt to change their names. And this, I looked at it by education. So less education, um, more likely to have taken their wives' last name. So you might think less education, they're less known for their name, maybe professionally, um, and therefore it would hurt them more to change it. So that makes sense. The only interesting thing is we tend to think of gender egalitarianism as getting greater with education. So it's kind of an interesting finding that men with less education were more likely to do it as they tend to be more gender traditional I was in their yeah, I always wonder if people just didn't take the cooler name. Like someone has a great name, and you think that right. that family name would sound great with my first name. So I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna. I mean, we're we're I, sometimes we're you know we're we're both traditional and non-traditional these days in so many ways that it feels like right. you, could, you might do that as well. Where do you see this going? Because again, not that, I don't think I was surprised that that four and five, and this is a this is U.S. data by the way. I should point out that four right. and five uh, brides take their husband's name. Um, but I I still thought, wow, 2023. That's 80 percent. That's a that's a high number. Yeah, it really is. But, you know, it's not as high as the percentage in my sample. Um, So perhaps I don't know, perhaps it is going to become less less common as um, time goes on, just very, very slowly. I love watching the younger generations um, on social media and how they're really grappling with gender and how they're feeling like gender is a spectrum. And so I, I really look forward to whether or not how they, you know, these these generations that are just coming of age now, what they're going to do when they get to marriage. Are they going to, you know, I don't want to say fall into the same traps, but are they going to do become more traditional as they get older, as some people really do or not? Um, so it's hard to predict, but it is a tradition that's not going in a way anytime, yeah. anytime soon. Just ask Jennifer Affleck. 
Yes, <laughs> Jennifer Lopez, as we know. I guess in some senses, uh, the issue here is that a family name, a surname, is a binary choice when you get married. You either do or yeah. you don't. And yeah. your other option is maybe to hyphenate it and turn it into something long. That's yeah. not always so appealing. You could invent something altogether different, but why bother doing that? So you're kind of left with a yes or no on it. And, and it is right. a binary choice. Right. And you would expect if things were more egalitarian, we would see more couples saying, all right, what's your last name? What's mine? Um, which one's cooler? Right. Like, right. or we, we would see it be more of a 50 50 type scenario. Um, but because it's not, we know that, you know, gender is very much at play and <laughs> to what is happening here. Um, and that men are maybe just more reluctant to, to make that move. Um, so it's really interesting. Yeah, it, it is. Well, Emily, thank you so much for your insight on this. One of the few people in North America who has great insight on this. So I really appreciate it. <laughs> I love to talk about it. I could do it all day. Thanks so much for having me.